1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let me pray, and uh, we will kick it off. Excuse the sniffling. I've got young kids, and I'm basically just perpetually sick now for like seven years. So <clears throat> let's pray. God, just, um, just thankful for this book. Thank you for uh, your servant, Paul who was mindful to, to pen it as he was inspired by you to do so. And um, thank you for the testimony within it. Thank you for the challenge that we've seen um, even into last week in this, this challenge of purity and this call to this relationship. But um, as I prayed before with, with the guys, I just, I pray that we would be open to a calling tonight um, for those that profess a faith in you, that we would, that we would have a new clarity about um, some of our role in the gospel and the call on our life and, and who you say that we are, not who we can be or who we are at times, but who we are. And so I pray for those that have, have brought in burden as we all have to a certain degree. Um, pray for those that are, are encouraged and excited um, and everything in between that we'd be ministered to, myself included, um, through the teaching of this last chapter, um, through the sum of this book. Uh, Holy Spirit, I ask now for the ability to teach uh, for all of us, myself included, that you would score our hearts, that you would allow us to learn from you. Uh, may everything that comes from me be discarded, and everything that comes from you be embedded in our hearts. So Jesus, we love you, praise you, can't wait to see you again. Amen. So James took a look at, at um, purity last week. We were in chapter four and kind of backtracking all the way. We're going through this study in First Thessalonians and and it's a, it's a great book. It's an encouraging book in a sense that Paul had planted this church at Thessalonica and had gotten ousted at some point, not from within the church, not like inter-church issues as we see a lot of times happen, um, but he had gotten pressure from the outside to leave, as was the case with Paul. I mean, you joke that wherever Paul went, it was either riot or revival, and sometimes both. Um, he was kicked through the streets like a soccer ball. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was pummeled. He was beaten. Um, Paul was, was a seasoned veteran at planting churches, and um, we know that as he planted this church, one of the, you know, one of the, 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 the toughest things about planting a church is that infancy stage is, is those that early on that really that sort of laying the foundation and, and caring for people and, and starting small and, and getting your roots set. And we know that some scholars disagree whether it was three weeks or up to 12 weeks, no more than 12 weeks. It could have been as few as three weeks. Paul planted this church and then left and was basically pushed out and left with this very young, vibrant church. And so he gets pushed south and he's got a couple travel companions and he writes this letter back to this church that he had planted. You know, I joke like we spend more time setting up church Facebook pages now than, than he likely got to actually establish this church. And so he's concerned because he knows that there's, there's false teachings, there's, there's false prophets, there's religious people, there's, there's folks that are trying to get into some of these, these Christian circles, corrupt them from within and scatter the church. And so Paul is concerned but if you've been coming, as you've seen over and over, what happens is he ends up sending Timothy. He's so concerned that he sends Timothy back to this church to just see how his friends are doing. I mean, he's got a, a, a legit pastor's heart. He wants to see how people are doing at this church. And Timothy comes back and he's like, Paul, it's awesome, <laughs> right? Like, like Paul's like, how are they? And he's like, they're doing epic. 
They're, they're, they love, they have faith, they're strong, they're, they're encouraged, they're excited, they're pushing out into culture, they're, they're not afraid to preach the truth, they're fighting off heresy and standing for the truth, and, and they're in grace and love. And it's just like, that's, that's the dream. And a lot of times you just, you figure it's always going to go the other way because we live in a world with Hollywood. Like, oh, it's just imploding, they need you, they can't do anything without you. They're like, we're good, like miss Paul, but eh, it's going fine. You know, and so he comes back to Paul. And so Paul writes this letter back to the church, having found out that they're doing well, right? Like, like we love, we love boring stories like that. We should like, by the grace of God, they were doing fine. Isn't that amazing? Like, we love that. It doesn't always have to be the church is imploding. It can be like, they're doing really well. So what he does is that he doesn't say, Hey, heard everything's great. Keep on good on you. He doesn't, he doesn't leave it at that either. Because like a good coach, like a good pastor, he says, you're making progress, so keep going. So keep going. I'm doing a little bit of a mentorship with a friend of mine who's starting a business in another state. And he, he comes to me for, for I'm, I'm a full-time marketing director by um, trade, by the way. So if you don't know my story, I'm not on staff here. Um, it's, that's way harder than what I do to be on, tr- on staff here. So I took the easier route. I have a secular job, okay? And so I, I do marketing and digital stuff and web and social media and all sorts of stuff. And I'm kind of mentoring a friend of mine who's launching a business in another state. And he called me, he said, Mark, we got our first three contracts. And I was like, that is so amazing. And I had just spent about an hour and a half with the guys on the phone, giving them strategy and biz dev type stuff. And, and, and I, I said, man, tell the guys, I'm so proud of you guys. Like, I wish I could be there. I wish I could take you out. I wish we could celebrate. You got three contracts. That's awesome. Do not stop. Like, like now is the time to step on the gas. Now is the time to move forward. Don't settle back in your first three contracts because you're going to execute on those projects and they're going to end. And I told him, I said, and I don't want you guys to just have to wait a couple months and have this big leap. And so it's this idea that even when things are going well, there's, there's encouragement, there's a call, there's a, a push, there's, there's progress to be had. It's not like He said, look, everything's great. So just keep doing whatever you're doing. Let me know if I can help. He still has been pushing them in that, in that good, loving, kind, caring way that a pastor should. And so there is still exhortation and there is still um, this purpose in Paul as he's writing. And look, the church wasn't perfect. We knew that, but they were doing pretty well. It was a vibrant young church. But as a good pastor, he says, look, there's still more work to be done. And so even if you're at a healthy church, know that it's still the role of the pastor to say, let's, let's, let's continue to push. Let's continue to move forward. And this chapter is about looking forward and, and pushing in that toward what we're going to see here is called the day of the Lord. And so even if you're in a, look, some of you come broken and hurting and wounded, and I'm so pumped you're here. Some of you are excited and you're like, man, things are going really well and I'm going to church, I'm here, right? Like, that's a good sign. Like, grades are good. Okay, college is going fine. Career, marriage, kids, right? There's still gonna be a call on your life. Like, that's not it. There's still more that God has for you in fulfilling your purpose here as an image bearer of him. And so we come into this, this, this final chapter where he's, he's been encouraging them and he's been encouraged. He's been excited about what's going on, but he's still pushing them. And, and James went over this, this push toward purity because surprisingly, maybe it was a young church that had, had sexual issues or, or some of these impure issues that are going through. It's completely common. We romanticize the first century church and think like, man, if we just could just be like them, they were a mess. We are like them. 
okay? They were a mess, we're a mess, the church in 40 years is gonna be a mess. But the idea is that Jesus is perfecting those people who are imperfect. And so we're coming in on this, this, this final chapter in 1 Thessalonians and he's writing this encouragement letter. And I was kind of thinking about this. I mean, I was joking with Chris that I, I, this is one of the few times that I didn't know. I, and you guys know me, I, I tend to just kind of vomit out honesty. Um, and that's to a fault sometimes, but I didn't know how I was really gonna kick off the sermon. I know you can do the quick recap. Um, a lot of times I like to just tell you what you're about to hear ahead of time. So you can't be like, oh, I see you were trying to be clever. I get it. Like, I, get, I see what you're doing here. Uh, I, just, I just want you to know that, that the very beginning of this has a very big call. And I want to point that out. But if we don't get that, the rest of it's just going to seem like a list of things to do. And so I don't, I don't want to get to the exhortations that Paul has toward the end because you're going to be like, oh, I have to do this and I should do this and I need to be better at that and this, that, and the other. If you see it through the lens of I have to, then I've lost you. And I don't want you to be here for religiosity purposes. I don't want you to be here collecting a list of things to do to be good. I want you to come with a love for the one that is good. And as, ja- as James, J- Jazz, we should call him Jazz next week, actually, when he shows, hey, Jazz, be like, you weren't here, you missed it, he's not here, so we can just give him a new nickname. And so uh, as, as, James, as James said last week, is that even in the purity sense, and I love what James did with it, if you weren't here last week, you can catch it online. He says, this isn't about purity. Because here, and I'll add this, purity won't save you, by the way. It won't. Purity won't save you. Dude, is there a place for purity in the Christian life? You better believe it, but it won't save you. It won't. I take some issue with some of the purity gospel stuff that goes on in the conferences. And, and, and what James appropriately did was didn't push purity. He said, pursue a relationship with Jesus and the purity will follow. That's the key. Don't pursue purity. Pursue Jesus who will make you pure. You, you, the closer you get to Jesus, the more you will be revulsed by your sin. So head toward him. And, and Paul was a fan of saying, hey, follow me, do what I do. Paul was, was, some people think he was arrogant, egotistical. He was indwelled with the Holy Spirit when he wrote it. Paul could say, follow me. Why? Because Paul knew where he was going and it wasn't toward self-service. It wasn't toward him amassing wealth or a big church. It was, he was, first of all, he was headed toward martyrdom. And second of all, he was headed toward Jesus. So he said, hey, follow me because I'm headed toward him. And so, so James took a look at this, this push last week. He says, look, pursue that relationship with Jesus, and there's, there's a very, I, I see it at least, there's a very big call in this chapter. And I wanna show you that because again, as I said, if you miss that, you could easily turn this chapter into moralism. And we are, God speak, Sunday nights, anything but moralism. Moralism was rampant, do this to be good. We pursue Jesus and things fall into place and it's messy at times. But number one, that pursuit of Jesus. And I want to see the kind of this response to that pursuit of Jesus. I want to shed some light on that because if we don't do it, the rest of the chapter will be lost. And so as we come in, it says this at the top of chapter five. Again, keeping in mind, he's writing to this church that he'd only been with a couple weeks, anywhere from three to 12 weeks. And he's writing back after sending Timothy up there to see how they were doing. And turns out they were doing pretty well but he still has exhortation for them. It says, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, and by the way, there's masculine language in this chapter. Ladies, don't be offended. 
when you, in the ancient languages, when you were talking to a group of people, if there were men and women, you use the masculine form of words. That's it. Okay. Feminist professors will tell you it's completely against women. It's, it's not by any means. Jesus treated women like no one else in his day. Okay. So you're going to see brethren. You're going to see son. Know that it's brothers and sisters. They just took the masculine form because they're speaking to a group of mixed sex. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. And so he says, concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. This is, uh, we've seen this before. Paul was saying, look, I was only there a short time, but we, they covered a lot of stuff. Like Paul, Paul was, was accustomed to setting a foundation fast and doing it right. And he says, look, concerning the times and the seasons, it's almost as if I don't need to write. He had taught on the end times with them already. Okay. Maybe some of you have been in a church for years and you've, ever, you've never actually studied the end times. You've, you've never studied either Revelation or some of the passages that come up in, in one of the Gospels, in Matthew, or Jesus' description of some of the end times. Even First Thessalonians, where it talks about the rapture of the church. We're not going to get into that too much tonight. But know that Paul, in the infancy of that church, had already taught them about the end times. And here's the funny thing, because people are always debating, like, when are the end times? Like, do you believe we're in the end times? Yes, just as Paul believed he was in the first century. So who is right? Uh, Both of us. So basically the world has been on a path to the ending since Jesus left. Okay? So were they in the end times? Yeah. Are we in the end times? Yeah. Okay? People are like, when do we know? And they try to piece it together. I'm not trying to mock it, but I I am a little frustrated with all the division in the church based on eschatology, which is the study of end times, that we get hyper crazy about we're going to be raptured before the tribulation, right in the middle of the tribulation, after the tribulation. Personally, selfishly, I want to go first so I can just watch it, right? (laughs) Oh, he's getting on his horse. It's going to be bad. (laughs) Right? I, I want to watch that nonsense from heaven. I don't want to be here for it willing to go through it selfishly pre-trib, right? Like pre-trib, want to be gone for that. Want to be up in the stadium seating at that point, okay? Anyone else? Movie, want to movie co that one? Okay. <laughs> Thousand Oaks joke, okay? And so, so this eschatology, this study of the end times, don't overdo it. I think Pastor Rob says it's something like es- everyone's got eschatology, right? Every, it's like having a belly button. It's like everyone has one. They all, they're all, they all stink and are full of lint, you know? Like everyone's got it. Just don't divide over it, okay? So if, you, if you're post-trib, you're pre-trib, you're mid-trib, you're first phase, second phase, 10th, I don't, Lord knows what people are calling it these days. If you love Jesus, we're fine. Amen? We all agree Jesus is coming back, yeah? Like, but when? Well, you'll know, by the way. <laughs> He's going to make no qualms about that. You'll know. And so he says, look, concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. He had taught them about the end times. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 35 through 36. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and that hour, no one knows not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. In Matthew 16, if you backtrack one through three, he actually criticized the religious leaders of his day for not being able to discern the sign of the times, though he just said, you won't know, but we should be weary of signs. We should search the scriptures and understand the seasons that we're in and the times that we're in, but that pursuit will never to be the end of knowing when it's going to end. Does that make sense? 
So we're called to be vigilant, to not, to not, it's, it's like, we may not know the exit on the freeway, but you better be paying attention to the signs. And then he'll tell you at that exit and you just get off. Does that make sense? Freeway culture, we get it in California. They're like, that's the clearest analogy I've ever heard in church in my life. Okay, so we, you better be reading the signs. You just don't know which one he's gonna say exit here. Yeah, sound good? I just came up with that. It's not even in my notes, okay? <laughs> Sometimes you impress yourself when you're like up here. It's crazy. It doesn't happen often. And so he says, then to the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, that's the super stuffy religious people. Have you ever noticed, by the way, the only people Jesus fights with in the Bible are the religious people. Okay, that's it. Never the widow, never the outcast, never the demoniac, never the broken, the downtrodden, the hurt. He fought with the religious people that made things, big things out of little things that added to what God said. And he has a critique for them. He says, and testing him, so they're testing him because that's all they ever did because they didn't really have full-time jobs. That's just, they walked around doing that. And he said, and testing him asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered to them and said, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. You hypocrites. And hypocrite is not set a standard and fail to meet it. It's called being a sinner. Welcome to the club. Being a hypocrite is knowing the truth and steering people away from it. It's Jesus' definition. I mean, he's a hypocrite. He's for green energy and his house has, you know, 14 generators. It's not being a hypocrite. It's being a, it's being a sinner. The politician said he was going to do this and he didn't do it. He's a sinner. You said you remember that one time you were a kid and you lost your wallet? You said, I'll never swear again. If you let me find my wallet. That's me. That's my example. I did it. Did I swear again? I swore again. Is that being a hypocrite? No. But knowing the truth and steering people elsewhere for selfish game, that's what Jesus declares to be a hypocrite. So he says, you're hypocrites. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. He says, you're off there debating and arguing about these little things and you're missing the big things. You're missing the movement of the gospel. You're missing what Jesus has done in and through the lives of his people. You are missing the big picture and he calls them hypocrites for it. And so he says to be weary of the signs. Look, read the signs, understand where this is going and the implications that the gospel has and the the shadows that fall on the earth as it passes through history. He says, but don't think that you're gonna ever understand because again, he says, but the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels, but only my father. And so a healthy view, I would say, is to search the scriptures, to understand the seasons and the times that we're in and how the scripture applies to it and how the gospel redeems it. But don't assume that you're gonna get to a point where you know when Jesus says enough is enough because only he knows. Amen? Make sense? Stop, let's, let's, let's just put that on hold in the church. Let's just stop arguing about that. We have bigger issues than debating in the sky when we're talking about the signs of the time, the seasons of the time. That's what we're called to do. And he says this, he says, the day of the Lord, which is a familiar Old Testament concept. He says, the day of the Lord. This will be God's day. Now it's not a single day, but it is a phase. And and, and, and poetic language and and biblical language and ancient language is is saying the day. It's kind of like, it's like, it's it's the day equals a season. It's, It's this time that takes place that will be God's, the day of the Lord, the season of God rapidly advancing the end times, which means that we are currently in the day of man. We've been given the day of man. It's been given over to us but you need to know at some point it becomes the day of the Lord. 
And so if you're frustrated with the world as you likely should be if you have a clear view of it, understand the repercussions of sin, understand that we've inflicted this upon ourselves, understand that this is the day of man, but this is not yet the day of the Lord. And that day the Bible promises you will come. I take great comfort in it. I take great comfort in the fact that the gospel is finished, but it's not over yet. Does that make sense? Jesus says finished, but notice the whole world didn't implode right after that. Why are we still here? What are you doing? Do we have to go to work tomorrow? He said it's finished. What are we doing? Why are we still here? I'm a Christian, right? Why, why, why isn't it all finished? It's finished, but it's not over. There's still another chapter that God gets to write and is sovereign over, and we're headed toward that. And he says it's gonna be the day of the Lord. So we live in the day of man, but there will be a day of the Lord a period of time when God intervenes in history to judge his enemies, to deliver his people and to establish his kingdom. And so if you're like me and you, you almost get physically sick at times listening to the news, international news, human trafficking, the things that go on at the Super Bowl, the abuse, the rape, the neglect, the war, the famine, the poverty, if that sickens you, it's okay. It doesn't mean that we don't pray for and work for a restoration now, but know that God will have his day. And so that gives us hope that God will, when this day comes, when this season comes, in that moment, then he will begin rapidly advancing his agenda. He will say, enough is enough of you having yours. And I love a Jesus that at some point, though he's patient now, like he was patient with me, wishing that all would be saved, allowing more children to come into the kingdom. I do love a Jesus, the real Jesus, who says at some point enough is enough. And he comes back to complete it all. We know it'll happen. As Christians, I'm here to tell you tonight, you do know the future. Bookies in Vegas would kill to be able to know one score of one game. Christian, we know how the entire thing ends. We know what the future holds. And it's Jesus coming back to judge and make war on his enemies, deliver his people and establish his kingdom on earth. And it says he comes as a thief in the night. Now, this is gonna be a little bit of a, 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 an intellectual jockey. You need to know that when he says that, as you're gonna see, he's not talking about the tribulation. That is something Secondary. There's not much description of it, but I'll show you the evidence because it says it's going to come as a thief in the night. For when they say, verse three, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. So I don't know if you know anything about the tribulation. I've taught verse by verse through the entire book of Revelation. It took us like 25 weeks. It was a couple years ago. Insane study. Spielberg couldn't touch it with a 10 foot pole if he tried to do a movie on it. It's absolute chaos. There are mountains literally being thrown into the ocean. There is a dragon. There is beasts. There are the false prophets. There is the antichrist. There are headless horsemen. There are literally hordes of demons running around earth, killing people, fighting, rebelling. It's absolute, utter chaos. It's not this. He says, when the world says, 
peace. We're safe. We're good. Though there is very little description, we don't know how long, what it looks like, but there is, if, you, if, if I could have my literary, if I could take kind of literary, literary steps, knowing that, that God is the greatest storyteller of all time, this will be the peace before the storm, the calm before the storm. Is that when things settle down and everyone says it's peaceful, it's quiet, it's safe, we're good. Then the second phase comes. That's when the tribulation begins. So he's not describing that. He says like a thief in the night is when God comes in and says, now it's begun. But people will think it's peace and safety. And so there's this, there's, there's this little pocket of time that we, we don't know. And I don't really care to know because it doesn't change my outlook. They're, the first phase is peace and safety on the earth. They say, we're good. And then the day of the Lord begins. And it's not the tribulation yet, though that is the extension of it but it's the quiet calm before the finishing storm. So he says, peace and safety. And he says, it comes as a thief in the night. It's this element of surprise. You won't know. I was just on jury duty last Tuesday. And one of the questions that they ask on the questionnaire, they go through everyone. I didn't make it last time. Last time I made it onto the panel. And then I got to say the name Jesus and they kicked me off. It was pretty dope. Um, And so um, if you ever want to get out of jury duty, just somehow find a way to talk about Jesus. They'll kick you out every time. And so another pastor, Brett Martin, was on there with me too. And they said something when I, I, and I didn't fake it. I didn't even say like my occupation is a pastor because it's not, I don't get paid by the church. My wife works at church. And one of the questions is, what do you do for a living? Director of marketing, digital commerce, da, da, da. What does your spouse do? Children's ministry director. So the defense is like, you guys involved at church? Yeah, I'm a pastor. And he was good too. He's like, so what do you think when the Bible says judge not, unless you be judged? I said, well, Jesus himself said judge righteously. He's like, okay, cool, get up. Okay, you know, like, <laughs> I was like see you. <laughs> like, I, I kind of want to be on a jury, but like, if you're going to ask me, I'm going to tell you, you know, so. Um, but it was interesting that in that quote, one of the questions is, some of you are like, how does he get there, <laughs> right? But, but it's interesting because one of the things they ask is, have you ever been a victim of a crime? What do you think the number one, from my anecdotal surveying, I was there forever, okay? I was there for 14 years on Tuesday. And, and it said, if you've been on jury duty, you know what I'm talking about. And so when they ask, have you ever been a victim of a crime? What do you think was the number one response? I've been burglarized. And they talk, and then the judge said, Has, was, was it really traumatizing? And they're like, oh, I, just, I just didn't know. I couldn't do anything about it. I didn't even know he was in my house. It came in through the back, which means he was in my backyard where my kids play. Like, it's, it's, it's the after effect. Like, they just didn't even know when it happened. Thieves rely on the element of surprise. Thieves, if you, if you study, you know, stealing and, 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 and thievery, there's even a time they all, they, they, they say that if you talk to habitual thieves is that they have a habitual clock. And if something is taking so long, it's over. They, they leave. They're trying to get into a car. I had my, my car burglarized when I moved out here from Minnesota. Drove my little 88 Suzuki Samurai all the way across. Got to LA, hung out with my great uncle by LAX, came out, popped my stereo off. Right? And it had, had sawed around the keyhole because it was an 88. All you had to do was saw it. And <clears throat> so you guys have never even heard of the 80s. Okay? And so like, and just popped it. And, and then we, you know, got interviewed by the cops and stuff like that. And he said, man, he's like, it's like, it's like a worst thing to say. He's like, man, your car was really easy to get into. Like, they won't spend that much time doing that. I'm like, thanks. Drove that car for four years through college, by the way. Still had the cutter on the keyhole. I didn't, <laughs> Cal Lutherans ain't going to do anything. And so, um, 
but, but, but they've got this clock. It has to be based on surprise. It has to be quick. It has to be before anyone can possibly notice something is, is going around. And so he says, the day of the Lord's going to slide in like that. You're going to wake up and be like, it's begun. Now, again, as Christians, we may be gone at that point. It may be the start of the tribulation. I, I'm not exactly sure and, and don't care to impress upon you. Calvary Chapel, we do believe that the, the rapture happens pre-tribulation, which I'm like super pumped about. Okay. And so, we, we believe that we're going to be gone. We see that in Revelation where John was carried up before tribulation. The word church is never mentioned again. We can go back and forth on the theology. Um, but just, just know that this, this day for those who are not under the protection of Jesus will happen. And they're going to wake up and go, it's begun? What happened last night? I didn't even know. And so he says it's going to be like a thief in the night. And he says peace and safety the unexpected nature of that day will be a tragedy for the unbeliever. I joke, and, and I'm to a fault, I'll joke about this sort of stuff. And it, it's from a place of security, but from a place of, of pain and worry, it's also not funny at all. I, I don't wish hell on, there, there comes a point, in, I think, in your faith where you don't even wish hell on Hitler anymore. I know that probably frustrates some of you. Maybe the college students are like, are you kidding me? Like, that's all we debate. Everything boils down to like Hitler. Everything on the internet, they have a law called Godwin's Law. It's the, the rate at which a conversation will ultimately whittle down to someone calling someone else Hitler on the internet. It's an actual law. It's got a Wikipedia page. So um, it's called Godwin's Law. It's on Wikipedia. It's true. Okay. And so, <laughs> you know, it's the best information because everyone can contribute. Okay. And so, Michael Scott. Okay. But at, the same, but at the same time, it's going to be a tragedy. It's going to be a tragedy when that day begins for the unbeliever. It's going to be awful. They're going to be lulled to sleep by political and economic conditions, but they will be rudely awakened, and the day of the Lord will have begun. And they're going to hear a frightening verdict. It says it right there at the end of verse 3 peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. I don't wish that on anyone. I don't. It's going to be awful. You're going to be lulled to sleep by safety and comfort, not trial and tribulation. That will come, but it will be after a phase of peace and security and they shall not escape. And he says, he calls it like labor pains. Another classic example, ladies know this. Guys, if you're, you're a husband, you'll walk through this with your wife. You know it's coming, don't you? But you don't know when. You know general time frames, yeah, but you don't know when. It could be this day, it could be the next day, the baby could come early, the baby could come late. You, could have, you can have contractions and then still be pregnant for a couple of weeks. You can have early contractions. You can have phantom contractions. You can have a lot of different things. You know it's coming, don't you? You don't get pregnant and be like, I don't think I'm going to have those. I'm going to wake up with a baby like Pinterest, right? And just, it'll be cute. It's not going to happen. Girls got it, okay? I'm a big fan of Pinterest, actually. Um, and guns, okay? And so, but, <laughs> but, Sorry, I didn't mean for it to be this much of a joke fest. But, but it says, look, it's inevitable, is it not? But it still comes unexpected. My wife's with Ethan began, I, I, she would know exactly, she would know the minute 
and she'd be mad that I forgot. But she, it was like 3 a.m. The night before we went and saw a movie, she had like Twizzlers and a full-size Slurpee. And so she's getting up in the middle of the night, like in pain. I'm like, of course you're in pain. There's like 4,000 grams of sugar that you just ate. You know, my kid wanted to come out, right? And so it began, we didn't know. We had a night like any other night. We were pregnant, knew it was coming. We just didn't know. So it's going to be like that. It's going to be a pain. It's the same language that Jesus used in Matthew 24, 4 through 8. He said, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And it's true, by the way. I think the most recent was some dude in Florida said he was Jesus. Good luck. And he says, I just, I would ask him to walk on water. But, and so it says, and they will lead many astray and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place. We should work for restoration in the world. But if you believe that through political activism and the right leadership, you're going to get to a point where there's no more war, you're being bamboozled. Jesus says, this must take place. Does that mean all wars are right? Not a chance. Does it mean all wars are wrong? Not a chance. Right in the middle with Jesus says, needs to happen. When you've turned yourself over to your sin in the day of man, this is what you will have until the day of the Lord. And then it says, Jesus comes back and in righteousness, he judges and makes war and he finalizes it. So we're not hyper militant, but we're also not pacifist. Not all war is wrong. I've seen war. I've been in war. It's not all right. It's not all wrong either. Okay. Jesus says this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And so it's this unexpected anticipation. Even as Christians, we anticipate and look forward to, but we don't yet know when exactly And so he's going to exhort us on that. And he says this in verse four, he says, but you brethren are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are, he does not say you can be. He does not say you sometimes are. He says, you are all sons and daughters of light. You are. He doesn't say you can be. He says that we are. That's a huge call. So you are not in darkness. We see darkness, but we are sons and daughters of light. If you are in Christ, you are a son, a daughter of light. I didn't say you were any good at it. I didn't say I was any good at it. We go through the same thing with premarital counseling. My wife and I do a fair amount of premarital counseling. The Bible says to the husband, I look at the husband, I said, the Bible says you are the head. Doesn't mean you'll be good. You just need to know that you are. Question not, the question is whether or not you're gonna be a good one. It doesn't say you can be the head. If you guys vote and you decide that you will be the head. He says that you are the head and you're to love your wife as Jesus loved the church. He says you are. Question is whether or not you're any good at it. Question is whether or not you're taking that call on your life seriously. 
question is whether or not you're pursuing Jesus so that he can reflect his light through you. He's going to be the power, but he expects you to be the light. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over in the Bible, this light imagery is used. The light itself is not the source of power. It receives power and emits light. I'm not saying you're the power source. Take a breath. That's a relief. I can't shoulder that. No pastor can, no Christian can. We're not expected to be the power. We are expected to be the light. And by the way, darkness is not a thing. Some of you know this. Some of you don't. Darkness is not a thing. Darkness doesn't come in. Light simply goes away. Dark, there is no such thing as darkness. There is simply the absence of light. Darkness is not a thing. The Christian worldview is that that darkness is not a thing. We're called to be light. The question is, are you doing that? Or have you shriveled away from your calling? It says you are sons. We are all sons. Those of you who have professed a faith in Jesus Christ, you're indwelled with the Holy Spirit. You are a son and a daughter of light. You go all the way back to the creation account. God says, let us make man and woman in our image. So known as the Imago Dei, in the image of God, unlike anything else in creation, unlike any fish, squirrel, rat, deer, mountain, tree, star, sun, moon, ground, water, none of it stamped in the image of God, but us. All of humans, all of humans stamped in the image and the likeness of God in the Imago Dei. So the idea is that, that God shines down his character and his nature and we reflect it to a broken world. Is that, that God would shine down his, his character and his attributes. And the word son does, is not a biological term, obviously, in the ancient language. It's, it's the portrayer of an attribute. And so you are, you are a son, you are, you are the, the portrayer of the attributes of God if you are in Christ. You are the, the daughter, you are the portrayer of the attributes of God if you are in Christ. It says we are all sons of light, and if God is light and within him there could be no darkness, then we too show, and, and though it's fractured and broken, it's like a broken mirror and the light beams off it in weird different directions. But that changes not the fact that we are called to be sons of and daughters of light that go into dark places and shine. So it says you are not in darkness. doesn't say you could be or sometimes are. It says that you are all sons, and again, and daughters of light and the sons of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. 1 John 1, 5 through 7 said, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, translation, if you say you're a Christian. So if you say you're a Christian, listen. If you're not, listen. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, and what's the only way you can walk in darkness? Darkness is not a thing. It's if we suppress the light. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanses us 
of all sin. It says fellowship. If we have fellowship with him, just like going back on James's point, you pursue Jesus first. Don't pursue purity. That will follow if you're in a true pursuit of Jesus. Trust me. We don't pursue not sinning. You pursue Jesus and you will become more and more offended with sin. Paul began his ministry and he said, I'm a sinner. Good place to start. And then he was a bulwark, wrote more books of the Bible, did missionary journey, planted tons of churches, preached crazy sermons, did all this sort of stuff. How did he end? Chief of sinners, he said. Why? Because he got closer to Jesus. Did he sin less? Probably. But each sin, though maybe smaller, was even more egregious than he ever imagined when he just called himself a sinner. You get closer to Jesus, you may sin less. You'll never be sinless. You may sin less, but you will be even more endeared to him that he saves you from cosmic treason. So he says, if we have fellowship with him, but we walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. As his image bearers, we walk in light wherever we go in life. This isn't just a call for pastors, not a call for elders and deacons and worship leaders and sound booth guys and video record. This is for all Christians. That is your call. You are, you are sons and daughters of light. It didn't ask if you wanted to be. God declares you to be. And there's a calling on your life above and beyond what you imagined. And I think deep down, we all want to be called to something higher. Like you don't join sports to play the same the rest of your life, do you? You don't join band to play at that level the rest of your life. Like in third grade, you pick up a recorder. You're like, if I could just play like this for the rest of my life, I'll be awesome. No, right? I don't think we do. I don't think we really go into to work, into business, into profession to just say, man, if I could just be called to be the same for the rest of my life. I think deep down, whether it's profession, whether it's relationships, whether it's sports, whether it's career, whether it's anything, I think we want to be called to something higher. The question is, what are you going to do when you're called up? Man, I really want to be in the big leagues. Well, you just got the call. You've heard me say it before. Just because you're on the team doesn't mean you're on the field. I'm a Christian. I'm saved. And you're sitting on the bench. You want to be on the field? Get out there. Go. Now the question is, what do you do with that? You're saved. No one's questioning you being saved. If you're in Christ, you're a son of light. You're a daughter of light. The question is, how do you respond to that call in your life now? Don't make it moralism. You're already saved. It's not going to save you. You're already saved. The question is, what are you going to do with that calling on your life, that responsibility? Paul's asking this of this church. He says, look, you guys are, you're doing great. God has more for you. You guys are doing awesome. And God has more for you. Keep pressing, keep chasing him. It says, therefore, let us not sleep. He's not talking about actual sleep. He's talking about spiritual sleep. He's talking about being unaware. He's talking about not being there, not reading the signs, taking a nap in the back as you're on a road trip. Oh, sorry, I didn't want to skip over this. Ephesians 5, 1 through 14. I thought this was awesome because about two and a half weeks ago, some of you know, some of you are scared, but some of you know that I'm big into metal um, and country, by the way. It's kind of weird, but... Um, Hated country my whole life till two years ago. But um, 
but I'm big into metal and I really only listen to Christian metal bands. And I was texting like Steven and Jackie. I was telling Chris and the guys at the pit that in the pit meeting, uh, pits, what we call pastors in training, it's not hell. And so, um, and so just like two and a half weeks ago, I started listening again to my very first band that got me into it. Cause Micah and the other Micah, when I first kind of came into teaching and stuff like that, that I was in like post hardcore, like thrice. Some of you are like, are we still in a sermon? Why is this guy talking about this stuff? And so like, and, and, and they got me into this band. They find, they found this band that they thought would get me over the hump of screaming. They're like, look, if you, I know screaming's weird, but here's a band. And it's this band called Oh Sleeper. Hardcore band, like epic band. And long story short, I've been listening to them again. They have incredible lyrics, even about the end times. And I'm going through the sermon and I pull out this passage and Ephesians 5, 1 through 14, particularly the very last verse, is where they get their name. It's this idea that they've been awakened to this call in their life. I'll show you. It says, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. You call yourself a Christian means a little Christ. Okay, imitator. We, we love to say that. It's a great, cool, cute bumper sticker. looks great on a webpage. But walking that out day in and day out is what it means to be a son or a daughter of light is that you imitate Jesus. People, I don't know what that looks like. Then you should read about this guy named Jesus. I'm not being sarcastic. Like seriously, get into a gospel. People all the time like debate, like which book should I start if I'm a believer? It's always the life and the ministry of Jesus. Pick up Mark. It's the shortest one. Read through the life and the ministry of Jesus and begin to figure out how you imitate him best in your role, in your life, in your calling, in your profession, at your school, in your job, in your marriage with your kids live out those truths of what he did, said, and completed. That's how you begin to, as it says, be an imitator of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us. I love that. It's never, hey, love people. It's, hey, I loved you. Now you extend that. It says also, as he also loved us and gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God, a sweet smelling aroma, but fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, jesting, that's locker room talk. And the thing before that, foolish talking, that's gossip, ladies. Coarse jesting, that's locker room talk. So everyone's covered. And it says, which are not fitting, but rather give of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. If you're a Christian, by the way, and you're like, but, I, but I'm an idolater, I've, 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 foolish, I've, I've talked foolishly, I've got coarse jetting, you need to know that Jesus' blood covers you. It doesn't mean you get to keep going. Paul says, should I continue in sin so that grace may abound? Of course not. But when you pursue Jesus, those wrinkles will get smoothed out. Because when you put on the robe of righteousness that Jesus died and cloaks you in, God no longer sees you through the lens of what you did. He sees you through the lens of what Jesus did. There you're perfect. When you take off your robe of weakness, though you're still a sinner and you put on what Jesus did, God looks at you and says, you're perfect. Come on in. But those who refuse that free gift, he calls not sons of light, not daughters of light, but the sons of disobedience. I say, no, I'll stand before God on my own account. I'll be good 51% of the time and he has to let me in. I just won't commit any of the, the 10 commandments. I just, as long as I don't murder someone, I'll, I'll get in because I've been a nice guy. 
God looks and sees a sinner. If you refuse the work of Jesus, you'll be seen as a sinner. You'll be seen as a son and a daughter of disobedience, not a son and a daughter of light. So it's not saying be perfect. It says accept the one who is and he'll cover your imperfection. And so he says, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them for you were once in darkness. And this is where he levels the playing field because then you start to get puffed up like, yeah, non-Christians are terrible. These guys are awful. He says, so were you. For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. In the Lord, your light. In me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing, but in the Lord, there's light. So when I say no to me, yes to him, light comes out. When your friends see you say no to you and yes to him, light comes out. When your spouse sees you say no to you and yes to him, light comes out. When your kids say you say, see you say no to you and yes to him, light comes out. You are now light in the Lord. Walk as children of light for the fruit of the spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them for it is shameful even to speak of these things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed may be made manifest by the light for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. You say, how do I get light? It says, Christ will give it to you. How do I get this? I want to expose that. Ask for it and be willing to receive it. It's a call in your life. I can't give it to you. John can't give it to you. Pastor Brett, Dave, none of the pastors, none of the elders, none of the deacons, none of the worship leaders, none of the, no one can give you that light. I can declare the truth that you have a calling on your life and then point you to the one who says, I will give it to you. Your prayer for worship tonight can be so simple. It can be Jesus, give me light. Him being the power, you reflecting that out. Broken and fractured as it's gonna come out. Saying no to you, yes to him. He will provide the light. And when you go into dark places, darkness will run. When you bring him into dark places, darkness will run. Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead. Christ will give you his light. And so it says, therefore, let us not sleep. This means living a life in the light means not sleeping spiritually, not being lazy, not being complacent. This call on our life is big and the rest of the chapter is predicated on you understanding that. He says, don't go to sleep. He's not talking about actual sleep. He's gonna say, be sober. He's not talking about have absolutely no alcohol in your system, but we won't even get into that. He's talking in, in, in this metaphoric picture. Don't, don't fall asleep at the wheel and have a clear mind. Be able to discern the things that are right, the things that are wrong. Live a life not sleeping spiritually. Live out a faith that is active and aware of what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. It says, do not sleep and Paul uses a different word here than he used for sleep of death mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4. I've got a commentator that says the word sleep is here used metaphorically to note indifference to spiritual realities on the part of believers. We're not indifferent. 
We're called to be sources of light. That means we shine light in dark places and it hurts. It stings for the world. But it's part of our call. We do it in grace. We do it in love. Why? Because Jesus did it in grace and in love. But he never backed down from shining truth against lies. And so he says, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. And he doesn't mean being bore, boring or dull. You know those folks. I'm not bagging on them because they're in the bride too, but some people are just flat out boring to be around. And they're Christians and you love them, but you don't want to hang with them, right? Just super, Bible says to be sober, no jesting, no bad, okay, well, right? Let me know how that works out for you in your room by yourself, okay? He's not talking about being dull. Sober is this idea of knowing the proper value of things and seeing things clearly for what they are. And he goes into some militant language because Paul's never afraid to remind us that if you're going to be a light, guess what's going to happen? You're also going to be a target. You're also going to be a target. I didn't plan this analogy either. First time I ran ops with the Army Rangers, I was in the Marine Corps, part of a small team that would attach to uh, Army Rangers when we were in Baghdad, Navy SEALs in Fallujah. And our little Humvee could bring air power, artillery, mortars to the battlefield. So they loved when we showed up because one little group of Marines could bring a whole ton of firepower. And we went in to attach for the very first time near Baghdad with a, a team of Rangers. And I was the driver as well as a scout observer. And I ran, a, a, I downloaded a feed from a, um, a jet, F-18s. We would do yo-yo missions with F-18s and they would drop bombs if needed to. I'll spare you the details. Um, but went into this very first attachment. It wasn't our first time outside the wire. It wasn't our first time in combat, but it was our first time really in pursuit of a cell um, in Iraq. And um, rolled up and it was our first time attaching with, with uh, Army Rangers. Love those guys. Um, and so... I'm a driver and I have questions. What's our rate of march? Like how fast do we drive? What's our interval? Um, are we going north on the southbound lane? Are we going south on the northbound lane? Like how are we doing this? Um, what do we, how, what are our radio? I have all these questions as a driver and you know, the Rangers had worked together. So they all kind of knew some of the obvious stuff I didn't know. So they said, any questions? I'm like, yeah. Uh, night vision goggles, lights on, lights off, all that sort of stuff. And he goes, lights on so that they know we're coming and they'll shoot at us. He says, and then we know where they are. He says, we always roll lights on in the middle of the night as a night op. He goes, we, not all teams do it, but he goes, lights on. Why? So that they shoot at us and we know where they are. Why? Because if you, you light up in the dark, you're going to be a target. You're going to be a target. And so he's going to go into some militant language. He's going to remind us that this is a war. He says, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. The breastplate was vital, obviously, in ancient armor. We still, to this day, I had a 25-pound plate on the front of my flak jacket, a 25-pound plate on the back. And then they would put... I don't know, seven pound plates on the side because they found out that people were, guys were shooting and getting shot through here because we just put in plates. So, and even in the old armor, it would actually wrap around your sides. They had it figured out a long time ago. It took us a couple years in the war to realize that guys were getting hit with frag grenades here. And so this, this idea of this, this breastplate, I kid you not, when I stepped off the plane in Kuwait, it was what they, they, they literally have a dude hands you a breastplate. Here you go. You're like, 
Awesome, cool. Can't wait to carry this thing around. Okay, like an 80 pound pack, okay? And you put it in. It's vital, vital organs. Vital organs. And he says that, that, that is just, that is the standard. It's where it all starts with the breastplate. You don't walk into war without a breastplate, but what does he say the breastplate is? He says faith and love. Faith and love. That you have a trust in what God has done, therefore it pours out in love for people. When you have a faith in what God has done, it will pour out into a love for people. And I've seen this in my own walk. When I'm struggling with my faith, I become meaner. Anyone else? When, I, when I'm struggling, it's actually a faith issue. When people start seeing Mark be a jerk again, they're like, he's having faith issues. It's nothing you're doing. Mark's having faith issues, questioning this. Why? Well, I said, I'm getting mad at people. I want to overpower people. I want to control people. Those are vital so he says, that's the breastplate. Don't, don't, don't walk into a spiritual warfare without faith in what God has done, pouring out in love for people. And he says, in a helmet of hope of salvation, that's another vital element is the helmet protects the head, obviously. And it's not hope as in just wishful thinking. As sons and daughters of light, you just don't go around wishing things would be great. Just hoping that it all works out. Romans 8, all things work together for good for those who love Christ Jesus. And we get apathetic and lazy and flighty and not prepared for battles. He says the hope of salvation, it's not wishful thinking, it's a sense of confidence and expectation in what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. Look, is, is your faith purely historical or is it futuristic? Is it based on everything past? Do you have anything that you're looking forward to in the future with your faith? So I'm telling you, most Christians, after Jesus said it's finished, it's like it's done. It's, it's just nothing else is happening. It's not true. Or else he would have signed, sealed, and delivered the entire thing and the consummation would have happened then. And we wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have to go to work tomorrow morning. Is your faith entirely historical? In terms of your view, it is entirely historical, by the way, the Christian faith. But is it at all futuristic? Does it, at all, does it at all have a hope forward? Or are you constantly talking about things past? I'm not diminishing the cross one bit, but, but did the gospel end on the cross for you? Because it didn't end on the cross for Christ. So it's better that I leave. So I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit. You know what's gonna happen? Who thinks they can do cooler things than Jesus? Raise your hand. Three people know their Bible. Jesus says, you're gonna do, <laughs> okay. Some of you are like, you're mean. I'm never coming back. And so, Jesus himself said, it's better that I go. In fact, my college pastor wrote a book. I was working at Barnes and Noble, would watch Christians come in and turn it around. Hmm. Why? Because he titled it, he titled it better, without, better Without Jesus. And they didn't read the fine print where they had a little line and were quoting Jesus. <laughs> the name of the book by Chuck Bomar was Better Off Without Jesus. Christians come in, turn it around at Barnes and Noble. And then I'm the worker having to go like, okay, geniuses. Like, I still work here better off without you. Who are they quoting? Jesus says, you know what? It's better that I go. So I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit. You know what's gonna happen? You guys are gonna do better things than I did. But I can't walk on water. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit can infest and, and, and dwell in billions of people. Jesus was in the region of Galilee for the incarnation. You're gonna do bigger and better things as sons and daughters of light if you rise to the call. So we rely on the Holy Spirit as the power. We plug in to shine light.
And so we have this confident expectation in what Jesus has done, what Jesus is currently doing and what he's gonna do. It's entirely historical. It's entirely futuristic as well. Hope presses forward. And it says, for God did not appoint us to wrath in verse nine, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, one through three says, and you were made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world. If you're saved, that's you, by the way. If you're saved, that's you. It's 100% of the team. At one point, walked according to the world, was gripped and ripped from the depths of hell by Jesus himself. And now we have a new calling. It says, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling our desires, the flesh of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. College will tell you, you were born good and you learned how to be bad. The Bible will teach you that you were born bad and Jesus has made you good. You're not a blank slate when you come out. Two men on the face of the planet have ever known perfection. It was Adam, he ruined it. And Jesus, he fulfilled it. Born children of wrath. Not amoral, not morally neutral. Bible says we were by nature children of wrath, but then redeemed. And so God does not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. To obtain just simply means to receive. He's not gonna force it on you. Like I say, whether you like it or not, since you obtain salvation, you, re- you accept that free gift, that, that robe of righteousness we talked about. You take off your robe of wickedness, though you'll still struggle with sin, but you put on his cloak of righteousness. Since we obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. And whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. I hope you're excited about what Jesus is gonna do. I am, I get why he's being patient but I'm excited for when he says enough is enough. He says, therefore comfort each other. I love this. He doesn't say uh, be comforted because here's what would happen. Raise your hand if you're human. Some of you don't understand the question. I have my eyes closed and I know some of you still aren't raising your hand. Okay, so we'll go over biology next week. But, um, But here's what happens. If you tell humans to be comforted, they all wait to be comforted. Yeah? The call from God is to comfort one another. And guess what? If we do that, all people will be comforted. This is an active faith. This is an active pursuit. This is an active life in the light. You simply don't say, I'm here. I showed up Sunday night. Pastor, comfort me. Where are we at on that? Do you know my name? I, I need to feel a little comfort right now. I'll try. I'll do my best. Come up and talk to me. But the call on the Christian life is to comfort Christians. And if Christians take that seriously, all Christians will be comforted. Amazing how that works out. Yeah? Questions? Confusion? Anger? Anything? Okay. He says, comfort each other. Edify one another. It means build up. Build up other Christians. Just as you also are doing. He says, I know you get it. It's the church of Thessalonica. He's like, you guys are doing it right. And he says, continue. Keep going. Don't stop. It's not over yet. There's more to do. Sons, daughters of light, comfort one another, build each other up. And then he's gonna go through various exhortations. I'm gonna rip through this. 
We're going to end in just a few minutes. But this is what I don't want you to get to because people will go to this list not understanding the calling on their life and then they'll come to this list and try to implement this list. It's not going to work if you don't take the calling seriously. If you're not a son of light, if you're not a daughter of light, this list is worthless. Good luck. You'll break it by Monday afternoon. You're not going to do it. You're not going to be perfect at it regardless, but you're going to have a desire to want to be perfected through it when you understand what Jesus has done, is doing, and has yet to do, and promises he will do. So this list of exhortations is for those who take the calling on their life seriously. And so to be honest, if you don't take it seriously that you're a son of light or you're a daughter of light, the rest of this, you can just tune out. I'm freeing you up to just tune it out. Because lest you, you run down some moralistic trail, I want you to sit and hibernate on sons and daughters of light. If you haven't got that, this list is of no value. And he says, and we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you, those leaders who are over you and admonish you. And that means to challenge you and to correct you lovingly and graciously, to esteem them very highly. You should like me, or at least esteem me very highly. The Bible says to you, you have to. But it says, in love for their work's sake, not because of my title, but because pastors have a calling on our lives to shepherd God's people. I wanted to blow by that because I don't want to spend much time telling you that the Bible says you have to esteem me highly. But it says, in love for their work's sake, be at peace. And by the way, other pastors, John, Mike is going to be a pastor, Pastor Brett. This is for all the pastors, for all the elders, for the leaders that oversee the church. That's what that is about. He says, be at peace among yourselves. So stop squabbling. It says, now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourself and for all. Rejoice always. I know that sucks. I know it sucks. Sometimes we don't feel like rejoicing, but don't allow your rejoicing to be circumstantial and based on circumstances. Let your rejoicing transcend circumstances. That you can rejoice a living king because even though the times that we don't understand, we know that he does. The Bible says he will work all things together for good. It doesn't say that everything that happens is good. Clearly not. But trust and rejoice in the fact that all things will work together for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It says pray without ceasing. I love this one. This one transformed my life. I'm, an, I'm, for the most part, I've, I've confessed that I'm, I'm fairly terrible at the, the discipline of praying, but I, but I am in a fairly ongoing, constant conversation with God, mostly on the motorcycle, because I've seen how you guys drive. Okay, but, but, but I, I, am, I am constantly, and the motorcycle, to be honest, is a great time, because I don't have earbuds, I don't have phone, I don't have this, that, and the other. I spend a lot of time just praying unceasingly on the motorcycle. I don't get a lot of quiet time in my daily schedule, But man, finding that time where I can just have a constant conversation, I'm not talking about sitting down and ripping through the Lord's prayer. Talking about just having a conversation. Why? Because I think Jesus is alive. Because I believe Jesus is alive. I believe he hears that conversation, that he honors that conversation, that he'll reply in certain ways. I'm not one of those guys that thinks I hear from Jesus every morning. It's not me. It's not me. But I have a constant conversation with him. So rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. How many people go to college and be like, man, I just wish I knew what God wanted from me. There it is. Oh. Something easier. It says right here, it says, in everything give thanks. 
What's God's will for my life? And everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It, but, but what for me specifically? I'm, I'm in college right now. That you would uh, in everything give thanks. I don't, but, like, but like for real, like careers, that in everything you would give thanks. Okay? Now you're, now you're burdened with the truth. Now you know what God's call in your life is. But I know it's tough to do. I joke, but I know it's tough. I know what it's like to go through tough times. But again, that our thankfulness can transcend circumstances, not be dependent on them as children of light. Do not quench the spirit. We can suppress the spirit, by the way. You can be indwelled with the Holy Spirit and suppress him. He doesn't override you. He's not a puppeteer. He doesn't have you doing a dance. It's in a relationship. It's an ebb and a flow. You can quench the spirit. Why do Christians do bad things? Because they can quench the spirit. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And Pastor Paul concludes this letter to a church by saying, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. He says, trust that God will do this work for you. In a relationship with him, he will begin to sanctify, which is a Bible word for make you more like Jesus. I want to be more like Jesus. If I could just muster up, nope, stop. Rely on him to do that. He will sanctify you. He will draw you closer. He will purify you. He will make you more like Jesus. We can't make ourselves more like Jesus. Rely on him. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to tell you, simply and profoundly, Jesus is coming. I need, want, and desire you to know, to believe, to be excited, and also tremble at the fact that Jesus is coming back. Just as Israel looked forward to the coming Messiah, the church today looks forward to the coming Messiah. And our heart breaks for those who don't know him, so it compels us to invest in their lives and to care and love for them in ways that the world will not. Why? Because we don't want to see anyone on that side of Jesus when he comes. Jesus is coming It says, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greetings to all the brethren with a holy kiss. We're gonna do that after I conclude. Never mind, just kidding. And so it says, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Children of light, why? Not because I said so, because God said so. That's the call on your life. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that though I would choose darkness every time, you sent your son to redeem my desires, my selfishness, my greed, my brokenness. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming, for comforting us, for indwelling us, for sanctifying us, for purifying us. Jesus, that you took the punishment on the cross so that my sins, past, present, and future, so that our sins, past, present, and future, would be redeemed. Jesus, we thank you for your work, past, present, and future. We thank you for what you've done, what you're doing, what you still have yet to do. Thank you that you call us sons and daughters of light. I pray that we would take that seriously now as we go into a time of worship before a risen king, that that's what we are declared to be, like it or not, we are. So I pray that you would call your children now, not so that the world would see us, 
but see the world would see the source from which we derive our power. Jesus, as it says, that you would give us your light, not for our sake, but for yours, for the kingdom. Jesus, we love you, praise you, can't wait to see you again. It's in your name we pray, amen.